Hello and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. If you're like me, money can be tight. I'm not rolling in it and yes, that's probably why I've got long hair. Save money wherever you can, right? So when it comes to binoculars, money is one of the restrictions. I don't always have the total amount up front and I could probably just pay it in dribs and drabs. Well, that's where Leica helped me. Leica have created a new way to shop. Introducing a 0% APR and a 9.9% APR on a large selection of items. Available online, this new program guarantees peace of mind when purchasing your bit of Leica kit. You even get to pick the right financing plan for you. You can read more about this program on the Leica Online Store UK. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Into the Wild. Thanks for tuning in. How have you all been? Have you enjoyed your week? What have you been doing? I know you can't directly answer me because it's a podcast, but I like to think that you all are anyway. Um, Last week was Mental Health Awareness Week and we spoke with the Mental Health Foundation. I don't know if you caught our bonus episode. As the Mental Health Foundation selected nature for their theme, um, I thought it would be fitting to have a chat with them. If you didn't check out the episode, it's there. It's right right underneath this one. Go and check it out. It's only 25 minutes long. We also did an Instagram Live episode with Matt Duke, award-winning macro wildlife photographer. Um, myself and Matt spoke about mental health and nature. So if you didn't check out that, head over to our Instagram and check that out. Um, but I hope you did have a good week, celebrated mental health, the, the importance and the awareness of it. Um, and I hope you enjoy connecting with nature as well. It's lovely seeing everyone's posts on um, online of different ways that nature helped them. I want to also say, I'm going to go a bit soft. Are you, are you ready for this? I'm going to go a bit soppy. But I want to also share that doing this podcast helps my mental health. And every time you listen to a show, it makes me happy. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being serious. I'm being serious. I'm not lying, but I'm sat here fully aware that I'm saying this on my own into a microphone. <laughs> Um, but it does it does so thanks for listening to all the shows and every time you share it on Instagram or Twitter or you say something nice it makes me really happy or when you DM me and go really enjoyed that or tell a little joke I really like it just keep doing it makes me smile keeps me going so anyway anyway man time are you ready for 60 second nature news it's coming up Um, I'm going to do it slightly differently this, um, this week still nature news Um, But the UK government released their action plan for animal welfare last week. Um, And it it was was full of words, bullet points, paragraphs, the normal headache stuff that I was like, oh my God, I don't like reading stuff like this. Um, And I thought, well, if I don't like it, maybe you lot don't like it. So I decided to read it for you. You're welcome. Right? Read every word of it. I thought for this week's nature news, I would kind of recap the main points that might have hit media or hit the news or hit social media and help you kind of understand what's going on so this is what we're going to do i'm going to relay to you in 60 seconds the main points from uh, the action plan for animal welfare are you ready let's go animals will now be recognized in law to be sentient meaning that they can perceive or feel things i can't believe it's 2021 and we finally realize that but here we are it's still good news Legislation will come into place to ban the import and export of detached shark fins. Despite shark finning being banned for 20 years in the UK, we still import shark fins which may contribute to illegal shark finning. 
Legislation will come into place to ban the sale and advertisement for unacceptable animal tourism, with the aim to steer people to more responsible animal activities abroad. Trophy hunting next, there were talks of the UK government committing to their 2019 manifesto of banning imports of trophies by bringing forward legislation to ensure the UK imports and exports of hunting trophies are not threatening conservation. Legislation will be brought in to prohibit primates and maybe other animals as pets, also improving current requirements for zoos in relation to their conservation work. Investigation into restricting the use and or sale of lead ammunition over all environments due to research suggesting 100,000 wildfowl each year die due to lead poisoning. Okay, God, ma'am. That was hard. Um, Shout out to my editor, Oscar, for having to put that together. (laughs) I don't know how many times I messed up throughout that. And I definitely, just a little bit of background for you, said wildflower instead of wildfowl the first time. But I corrected it. Um, If you haven't read the Action Plan for Animal Welfare, I do urge you to have a read through. There's loads of really good points, loads of interesting points. And there are some points as well which have a few question marks. I'm not quite sure how they're going to pan out or, you know, how they're going to be managed. But be interesting especially the trophy hunting one we you know i've seen lots of talks online about how are they gonna why when are they gonna you know there's lots of questions but it is it was nice i for me to see them recognize some complexity into that issue and not just a blanket ban so yeah some good points some really good points um have a look through and, and let's hope our government actually do what they say Okay, let's move on to today's show, shall we? Um, Before I do move on to today's show, I must tell you that unfortunately there was a technical issue on my guest's recording, which meant um, a part of the show was lost, unfortunately. Um, But Oscar, my lovely editor Oscar, Oscar the Great, I call him, has done a lovely job piecing this together. Um, So although we've lost a little bit, it's still a wonderful episode, and I might catch up with my guest at a later date to do a part two to catch up on the bits that were missed out. But this week's show is with Charlie Jacoby from Field Sports TV. We speak about gamekeeping in the UK, and we talk about hunting and shooting. A bit of a random topic, maybe, for Into the Wild, a topic that I have my views on. But the reason why we're doing it is because when I spoke about UK bird crime, part one, two and three, Indy Green, Jack Baddams and then the RSPB, I got a few messages saying I was being a bit biased. So I wanted to flip that and go, okay, I I hear you. You were heard. So I got a hunter on instead. Let's talk about the topic with a hunter. So we didn't just focus on bird crime. Uh, We spoke about gamekeeping, what needs to change to help biodiversity, what's going well with it. We spoke about... Uh, the amount of pheasants that are released. We spoke about heather burning and we spoke about bird crime. Now, please listen to this with an open mind. It was Charlie's opportunity to answer these questions. Um, So I gave him the opportunity to do so and I listened. There were some things that I I know Charlie will not mind me saying that didn't sit well with me. I didn't quite understand or see the point very well. I thought a little bit differently, but that's the point of chats like this. It's about bringing two people from the opposite ends of the spectrum... (laughs) and they really were you'll hear me and charlie joke about that from the opposite ends of the spectrum coming together and having this chat to try and improve biodiversity in the uk to end animal cruelty and pretty much save the planet that's why this show exists so i hope you enjoy the show there may be points that you don't agree with 
There were certainly, like I said, points that I didn't agree with. But listen to it. And then after the show, do some research, like I did. I did lots of research afterwards, so... I also did lots of research prior to the episode as well. So yeah, I hope you enjoy it. There might be a part two at some point. But this is Gamekeeping and Shooting in the UK with Charlie Jacoby. Well, Charlie, welcome to Into the Wild. It's a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to get the chance to chat. Um, how are you? How has your day been so far? Well, it's a pleasure to meet you too, Ryan. Uh, it's, um, well, you can just see a little bit of sunshine coming through here, but <laughs> but I am indoors and I'm aware that it is still, I mean, we're just at the kind of <laughs> beginning of May freezing cold moment, so I'm, I'm not going out mm. there. I don't want to go outside. No, that's, that's, it's that's warm inside and you're yeah. like, that's lovely to look at, but you know outside it's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> Curtains are still closed. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, well, no, it's a pleasure to have you on. It's an interesting topic we're talking about today, so I'm really excited to get into it. But let's start uh, where we start all the time on Interworld. Can you tell us who you are, Charlie, and what is it you do? Right, my name is Charlie Jacoby. I run Field Sports Channel, which is a YouTube channel, um, and we do a weekly show about hunting, and shooting, and fishing. And yeah, we, we've, we've got a lot of viewers there. I mean, shooting is very popular. You know, about one in mm. 10 people in the UK have got a gun license and and do it um is that right one in ten no one in a hundred one in a hundred still enough <laughs> we're not quite at america standard yet <laughs> no no exactly no. um and but you know it's, it's very popular but it's also it's also a minority and mm. one in a hundred people are absolutely convinced that we're we're disastrous and terrible and shouldn't be allowed and then probably 98 in 100 don't care either way yeah <laughs> usually the way um so also this is the second question we always ask and i guess it I don't know, maybe some people would think this is a weird question to ask on this topic as well. But it is a question I always lead up with is you must be a lover of the outdoors and nature and wildlife for being in the hunting world. So when did your love for nature and wildlife begin for you? Yeah, so I mean, this this is what's so weird. All shooters, all anti-shooters want the same thing. You know, they they love the countryside, but the shooters do something which the anti-shooters don't like. Yeah, uh, so my dad was a kind of very classic, is a very classic zoologist. Do you know who I mean by Richard Dawkins? Yes. Yeah, okay, so that was interesting. Richard Dawkins went to Oxford University and my dad went to Oxford University and my dad did the zoology course that basically David Attenborough did a few years before. And Richard, oh, wow. <laughs> well, Richard Dawkins did, and, and which, which David Attenborough subsequently turned into a very successful series of <laughs> programs. For yeah, the I've heard of him, yeah. If, if, only, <laughs> if only my dad had thought of that. Um, but, uh, and Richard Dawkins did the same course. And everybody's kind of, you know, they looked at the results on the board and everybody gets their sort of, you know, twos and ones and all that kind of thing. And, and everybody was a bit surprised to see Richard Dawkins' name up there because nobody had ever heard of him because he was not that kind of, you know, 19th century naturalist which oxford was still producing at the end of the 1950s beginning of the 1960s you know he was a a theoretical zoologist and he was kind of more interested in the math side of it um Mm. so so i kind of grew up with uh, i suppose sort of the last days of darwin ringing in my ears you know and um (laughs) it meant i had to pass my biology what was an o level now gcse otherwise i'd be in trouble that was stressful and uh, i I kind of i kind of grew up with with that level of of nature Mm. and love of nature and shooting is absolutely fine now in the what are we i'm now 53 so in the 35 years since i left school the world has 
polarized, I would say, mm. more into a kind of academic version of nature. There's a lot of there's a lot of grey in this, but and, you know, a kind of academic version, sort of university version of nature, which doesn't really have any room for hunting and shooting and a practical version of nature which is completely dependent on it and that's probably quite unhealthy do you think that kind of stems in the same way where land has been used in a certain way or nature has lived alongside land in a certain way for many years that it kind of it's, it's not as easy as a snap get rid of kind of thing you have to kind of adapt and change as the natural land does as well do you mean land like farming land or land like all land? well land as in as in you know whether we're talking about coppers and trees or whether we're talking about farming on land or whatever you know it, when people say just leave it alone and let it be is not always as easy as that. Okay, yeah. Well, I think I think that's I think that is absolutely yes. You know, I'm sorry to say I think it's a simple version of the argument, Ryan. I think you could you could do a lot better than that. <laughs> that's, you know, that's, I, me. that's me. That's me. I think the, the I think the thing there is uh, we have gone through a period of desperate, disastrous, intensive management in the years following the w- World War Two. What mm. ha- has happened to British land countryside has been appalling, and I am going to lump the blame for that at the door of farmers. And I'm also going to hold my hands up and say, shooters are also farmers, farmers are also shooters. You know, that is that is one problem we have. I think we are entering a period where, you know, if you look at Dieter Helm, uh, he's a DEFRA advisor who's come up with a 25-year plan for the countryside that many people in government really like. It's about natural capital. It's about nature. That's probably going to be a good thing. It's probably not going to involve so much DDT. Mm. My dad said, okay, I'll keep talking about him, but uh, he, he talked about this extraordinary kind of silky white substance that would you know you have in your hands and and he said you threw it at a tree all the bugs would die he said even the thrushes would fall dead out of the tree that was ddt my god it was horrifying absolutely horrifying yeah those days are gone those days are gone so um which is a good thing so natural capital and kind of the the way forward i now see it and i hope this is going to come true in my lifetime Mm. a sort of three-way relationship you have agriculture you have the kind of gamekeeping shooting world you have Mm. the sort of vegan consumer it's a supply relationship you have farmers supplying vegetarians with green foods that's fab you have farmers and shooters getting on quite well shooters not supplying vegetarians with wild food (laughs) Uh, unsurprisingly for obvious reasons (laughs) but i think that may change because i think you know gradually vegetarianism will adapt to become more kind of locally sourced resourced Mm -hmm. foods that will include wild food because you know if you look at it from a sort of pure evidence point of view maybe it's true to say the deer had a happier life than the sheep i think the farmers are probably going to be the losers or more the losers from this relationship but we will still need them and there's a sort of slightly woolly idea that you know maybe they'll all become kind of wonderful green and sustainable farmers i think they will because i think there'll be a real demand for that from from both sides Mm -hmm. and i hope that by the end of it there will be a kind of coming together of that the sort of two bottom parts of the of the triangle which is the you know basically the vegans and me <laughs> that's you and me charlie yeah are you vegan <laughs> i'm vegan yeah we, we, <laughs> ryan we could be friends <laughs> and we are this, oh, is, the, we are. We are. <laughs> this is the thing this is what i like about this show is that it, it it's not about you know how long have we spoken for it's like it's like finding out like an atheist and someone that's yeah, super religious but it's we again like you said we nine times out of ten we want the same things i personally wouldn't hunt i just wouldn't do it but i do understand 
that I don't rule the world (laughs) and that things work. God, I wish, but it's not, you know, things don't work as Ryan's brain does. And like I said earlier, when I said about the simple of like, you know, just leave it alone. I know that it's not as simple as that. I know there's way more complexities in, in managing and Land has got used to different things. So let's, um, this is a question I wanted to ask because actually this brings us on nicely because you said like, you know, vegans and then yourself. This is an area I don't understand because I've never... Now, as I said to you before, I'm not anti-hunting in any way, shape or form, but I, do, I don't like it as a to- as a event. I wouldn't do it personally. Why Why do you... What is it about hunting and shooting you like? This is a really good question. And whenever somebody says this is a really good question, that basically buys them time. But I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm saying this is a really good question for the right reasons because I, I have tried... I've tried to answer this in a media context. I tried to answer this on ITV and it's very, very difficult to put across okay. in the media. But I'm going to try. And the lovely thing about the podcast is we have a little bit of time. So if you if you kind of forgive yes. me, I'll try. All right. Uh, and, I, and also, I should say, I've, I gave this answer to ITV and I tried that on a few other people and they said no that really that really doesn't work they said you know don't don't even try we're independent say what you want i'm gonna do it anyway okay (laughs) so uh, it's more than one soundbite when Mm. you go out shooting hunting whatever you call it first of all i think it's important to know that there is no consensus really across the world as to what global hunting is one of the great things about being anti-hunting is there's consensus you know you all think that white fluffy rabbits are cute you know i I do too actually but um and, and most hunters think white fluffy rabbits are cute too but ask them about hunting and i've been shooting pheasants in china which is fascinating they Mm. like to wound pheasants injure pheasants uh, because it keeps them fresh on the way to the kitchen they don't like to kill them i hate that i think that is horrible Mm. almost everybody in the uk hates that the americans like to go to africa to decorate their houses i don't really understand that but it's what they Mm. do you know i met one american who had one sable antelope horn on one side of his desk and he he specifically found the one that would match and he went to africa to shoot it i mean i don't quite get that but yeah you know but then when i explain to my chinese and my american friends what i like to do is walk slowly towards pheasants until they fly up in the air they go no that's just nuts that that makes (laughs) that makes no sense at all so we start from that position but for me i think in essence what what works with the world with, with, with the explanation of hunting is let us say you set out in the morning with your dog and your gun okay it is like your picture of the world is like you turn up the volume on the television it's like the picture is turned up everything mm. is everything is much much more it, it is much more exciting all your nerves are working really really hard your senses are working really really hard you absorb so much more from the countryside you know that bit in hollywood films where it sort of suddenly goes slow motion you know it's you, know, <laughs> yeah. you you see a kingfisher fly past you can see every wing beat okay that's a bit of an exaggeration but it's sort of a bit like that <laughs> No, but I know what you mean. Yeah. In the moment. So so it's in the moment. So first of all, excitement. All right. And I think that's a cultural thing as well. You know, that's sort of a bit Mm. more nurtured than nature. I think there's a bit where you point your, in my case, gun at something and you'd have to take its life. And actually one friend of mine put put it this way. He said, shooting an animal is 99% elation and 1% horror. And actually he was a soldier and he said, in his case, shooting a human is, he said, I think slightly controversially, 99% horror and 1% elation. And I th- I think that is, I think that's an incredible simplification of both the things. Mm-hmm. But from a media point of view, it kind of, it kind of works. So it is not the complete horror that you would feel at the very, very idea. It, it is a sort of sense of elation and yeah. 
but mixed with horror. And also, you know, you will notice that some people, as they grow older, just stop shooting. It, they just don't want to do it anymore. Really? Is, yeah. And some people take up shooting in later life and they didn't want to do it earlier. But perhaps more people just stop shooting, just do the dog work. There's a huge social side to it. You know, when Tony yes. Blair banned fox hunting, he was trying to, without perhaps knowing it, stamp out rural communities just like Margaret Thatcher tried to stamp out mining communities. You know, it, was, it has that sort of awful social on-cost as well and wonderful social benefit. And then the final thing, final thing, and I told you this is going to take a long time, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's interesting. The final thing is... It's yummy, you know. <laughs> it's really delicious. <laughs> um, and, and I Brilliant. think that's, that's us. So I'm going to criticise you, or not you, I'm going to criticise the, the, the kind of anti-hunting approach. And I'm going to say, I think it's a bit one-dimensional. Um, and I think my version is probably, you know, at best, two-dimensional, but it's one more dimension than you have. So I can look at a white fluffy bunny and say, that's cute. But I can also look at it and say it's delicious, which I don't think yeah. you can do. But I will reverse that and say I can, because I. this is where I like to think, I think there's many people that think in the same way as me. I don't eat meat mainly from industrial farming and agriculture and things like that, and also an environmental impact. Also a moral, I think it comes in hand in hand, I don't think you can ignore that. I can look at a squirrel and think it's cute. Squirrels are cute. Like, I think if you disagreed with that, I think, like, mate, go for a walk and enjoy There's it. There's something wrong but, with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I recognise the damage of what overpopulation of a squirrel can do, and therefore if they need to be controlled because of the lack of predators, then hunting is a way to do that. should be a last resort. We should be looking at different things, and the same as we're looking at, not, maybe not so much squirrels, but if we're looking at different animals we're reintroducing, a cull should really be the last thing. Let's look at bringing back stuff that can manage it on its own. And also, I, I ate meat for years. It is delicious. I'm not going to say it's not delicious. <laughs> if it wasn't delicious, I would have I would have been vegan at the age of four. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I do agree. That's where I will say I'm not as different as you. I just choose not to sure. not to do it. Well, I, I, I've got fox hunting friends who are vegetarian, you know, and mm. they are vegetarian for exactly the same reasons as you. They don't like the factory farming side, but they, they do like chasing, you know, riding Im immensely fast across countryside. Just on the squirrel thing, I mean, mm. I, 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 get, I get they're looking at alternative thing. If you've got an invasive exotic like a grey squirrel, though, and it is clearly having a very bad effect on red squirrels, surely the only thing you can do, apart from send it back to America, <laughs> repatriate it, is to, is, to, is to shoot it, surely. Yeah, well, yeah, I think at this stage, yeah, I, I guess when I say it's last resort, I guess I'm looking at, like, let's, um, let's use the beaver reintroductions as, a, as an example, going, like, people go, what if they get out of control? So, well, it's not there yet. Let's, let's manage it and, um, and, and see where that goes. But I also, I also, I think there's also an element for me, this is my personal opinion of going, does, does nature to care if it's grey or red does it does it matter like you, no. you know does, <laughs> does it no. like you, you know it's a shame it's happened that the red squirrels been, but also are we over personalizing it maybe oh, oh to just... totally we are so 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 my dad gets very excited about you know um aspects of, sort of human behavior and zoology and things like that and he he will point out without being prompted that you know to the nearest decimal point we are basically the same as bacteria so that's that <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, so my next question for you, Charlie, is where do you think, if any, the issues in hunting and shooting community and industry are in the UK? I think uh, communication is a huge one. Mm. I think it's kind of, well, it falls at many doors, but one of the doors it falls at is, is the sort of halls of residence doors. Uh, so there's a, there's a disconnection between people who live and work and shoot and hunt in the countryside and what is acceptable as an Islington dinner party. 
you know, or an Islington mm-hmm. restaurant. Oh, do you remember restaurants? Oh, they were great. Weren't they? <laughs> yeah, do you remember those days? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to the 1950s. Um, I think I think this whole idea of the people who are producing the evidence that manage the countryside are very often from the same halls of residence as the people who are in political power or civil service power. And I think mm. that's unhealthy. I mean, Beavers is an interesting one. So I pick up a lot of what would be dismissed as anecdotal evidence, but it's from gamekeepers on the ground who don't have degrees and you know in the river tay there are now a lot of beavers and at the time they banned the shooting of beavers in scotland which is two years ago now or they reduced the shooting down to just a licensed system they were saying it's terrible there must be about 300 beavers in the whole tay system i mean you know we, we want to protect them and and one keeper i spoke to you said well 300 beavers in the whole tay system i've shot 500 in the last month therefore i think there are a few more than not counting and we also have a problem you know that that sort of extends when you kind of disenfranchise people who live in the countryside they go off the rspb for example so the rspb mm. bto they're very good at counting birds one of the things they do really really well is count birds provide evidence upon which decisions are made however there are now many many estates that will not allow the rspb on their ground so they can't count the birds and so you, you get a you know the, the old joke about the uh, bird distribution map was usually better at showing the kind of bird water distribution than the actual bird distribution so you get the same sort of problem now the rspb is not able to count how many cranes there are because some of them mm. are on land they can't go on and so decisions are being made about cranes that do not include all the ones that are over there i, I think we therefore the solution is communication you know we need yeah. the politicians to and the civil service to step up from their offices buy a pair of wellies and go and meet the gamekeepers and find out what's going on um so yeah. it's, a, it's a crisis of evidence really yeah absolutely and but what what do you think like hunting I guess it's so hard to use just the term hunting because, as we've said already, there's such a like broad aspect of that word. But let's let's concentrate on hunting in the UK, whether it's you know, on game gamekeeping sites. How do you believe that can benefit biodiversity and the environment? And do you think that's being accomplished now? Yeah. Okay. So so this is an interesting one. Perhaps an example to point to is uh, I, I went and did a spot on the stage with Chris Packham, Ruth Tingay, and Mark Avery at mm. Bird Fair a couple of yeah. years ago. And do you remember bird fairs? Do you remember fairs? Oh, I, I do. I remember everything social. I just miss it greatly. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that uh, Ruth and Chris produced, I don't think Mark was part of it, was a thing called Revive, which was um, mm. basically a, a sort of anti-grouse shooting, but broadly pro-rewilding uh, movement. And they and they produced a brochure for it. And on the front of the brochure was a beautiful Scottish landscape with native deciduous trees growing on it, a sort of hillside with, uh, you know, rowan and uh, all sorts of lovely trees on it and on the other side was a patchwork of burnt and purple heather moorland for grouse shooting mm. managed moorland for grouse shooting so ruth basically was saying look at this front isn't it wonderful and look at this back isn't it terrible and what was weird of course is i looked at it completely the other way around so i look at the back and i go wow managed for waders you know the bulk of europe's waders are breeding because we're managing them all and like that it looks amazing it's fantastic yes there are burnt bits but they're there to regenerate the heather blah 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 all that sort of stuff and i was looking at the front and going oh that's a fire risk dear oh dear <laughs> so <laughs> you could sort of you could go you know actually uh, the, the, it's going to be very difficult for me and ruth to come together on that one i think uh, i said to her look i 
I think this is rewilding, you know, this kind of management is rewilding. And, you know, you hear the word rewilding in the vernacular. I mean, to many people, it, it just means gardening. But um, yeah. if, you take, if you take gardening to its fullest sort of degree, you get to, you get to grow more management. But so I, I think rewilding when I look at that, and I said that to Ruth, and she looked at me and went, are you joking? <laughs> so I think it's weird, isn't it? Because it's two end of the spectrums. It's yeah, we, well, spectrum. Spectrum's the right word there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, I'm trying to be man in the middle here because I I enjoy the rewilding movement. I think for, for a couple of reasons, and it's certainly not an easy thing to do. But I think it's easy to relate with and understand. That's why I like it because I think it speaks to many people. The other thing I like about rewilding is that it covers many levels do you know what i mean it's not just you know as you said there with the burning the heather and it creates a great land for um for waders and stuff but i i guess with some of the rewilding side of it it benefits this animal this animal again i'll use a beaver as an example because it's been spoken about so much in the last year is that it creates and it, it can it create an ecosystem that can provide so much i guess but then on the other side as you said it it benefits waders but then also the activity it must be does burning i mean we're going to come on to burning shortly i think yeah. in fact shall i just go on to burning. actually just before you ask about burning could can i just just sort yeah. of chuck in so, so i mean it's a sort of thing about intention so it's really nice that people want to do what they want to do to the countryside because it shows mm. they're interested you know the worst thing that could happen to the british countryside is if everybody decides to live in tower blocks and ignore it you know that, that yes would be, absolutely that would be yeah. awful there are problems and there are always going to be problems i love the fact that we have a sort of system in this country where private property ownership is very much part of what we do contract law means an englishman's home is his castle you know i, I think that's <laughs> that's great it means that nep castle can rewild if they want to and next yeah. door you know it doesn't and i think again just just on this and um, one of the things mm. that people on both sides take for granted is the the countryside is not one big green blob and it is a huge kind of omelet of different uh, management styles i mean i i mm-hmm. manage the deer in a little bit of woodland on a let's keep all you know let's maintain a healthy herd of deer but shoot all the gray squirrels i know that the woman down at the end loves the squirrels and feeds them so you know she's managing her bit which is smaller than mine for squirrels which is fine and and i know that bloke over there who farms hates deer and every time any of my deer go on he just nails them and and i, <laughs> and I don't like that but you know but it's fine because broadly speaking and we have a framework handed down to us from defra which you know allows us to do all the things mm. we do and so yeah as long as people are pro doing something then it's great so yeah yeah no i i, I agree with that i, I think i think that because before i go onto the onto the grass moors it needs to come together though doesn't it really like, like you said, with the communication and also the ideas, you know, we're living in a time where land is... is f- <laughs> well, yeah, I'll call no, it like, yes, but, but- no, yes, yes and no. I mean, okay, so the framework needs working on and constantly updating. Mm. I get that. I don't think it's as bad as people think. I mean, you know, there is a lot of hostage situations you read about in the press. You know, send us five pounds or the baby yeah. bird gets it. It's pretty, pretty standard. I think, <laughs> yeah. I, I think the disenfranchisement of people... Uh, on both sides is a problem. Mm. So whenever I see some, I mean, I, I don't usually use these words together, but poor Hunt Saboteur, you know, complaining that justice system is letting them down. I feel a twinge of of, of sorrow and apology for that because mm. they are above all in that situation feeling disenfranchised. But I feel really cross when I see the RSPB saying we hate gamekeepers because you're going no you are you should be working with gamekeepers you you want the same thing you manage 330,000 acres gamekeepers manage a north of 40 million acres so make friends you know that that, that would yeah be my... this is my point yeah because I because th- I think it'd be amazing if hunting 
could work alongside Rewarden. Well, I'm going to throw that straight back at you, long-haired, vintage shirt Rewarden. <laughs> May I say, I admire that Don't shirt. Don't you get personal. I admire You're that shirt a great that. deal. I, I would want, if I had the guts, I'd wear it too. But I, anyway, no, because, because I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? You know, the, the disenfranchisement, mm. I feel, tends to come our way because the governments, the, the kind of, the liberal democracy that's in charge right now was in the same halls of residence as the broadly anti-shooting, anti-hunting world that it seems to be supplying them with the answers. Now, I think there's a great deal of feeling on the other side that, you know, the Maggie establishment is still there. And that's probably mm. true right now more than ever, what with Boris being in charge. But that said, Carrie's also in charge and, you know, she's a dangerous lefty pinko. <laughs> <laughs> but that's... But that's what I mean. I, I think both sides need to go. We can use, you know, we can use gamekeeping and hunting yes. for rewilding, it's and about, rewilding can be added yeah, on yeah, that to those be, sites. Because it'd be, that'd be lovely. imagine yeah. if most of our meat in the UK, like you said earlier, with the triangle of suppliers, came from wild. Fe- if we had several types of pheasant being hunted, but on a land that also had high amphibian rates, insect rates, bird rates, yes. raptor rates, all that yes. stuff, that would be. That's heaven because I think that's because we are part. Oh God, I'm going on this big vegan hippie rant now. But we are part of the ecosystem. We are part of it, and therefore are allowed to be in it. So I think using it to the greatest. Of course, I can see you laughing. No, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm loving this. He's not even sitting in a tree while he's recording this. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Don't you? You can't do that because you're sat in that beautiful house with that big painting behind I've you. Got a, so I've got you a tie on. I'm trying to be. I know. Part, I'm trying to be part of we the establishment. I'm not different. part of. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. a- amphibian. Okay. Here's here's a good one. Okay. Going back mm. to the omelet point. If you release an awful lot of pheasants into one shooting area, you will probably yes. lose a lot of your snakes and lizards, unquestionably. I live in Somerset, and there are some very big shoots around me, and. You can imagine in that particular spot, there's not going to be many lizards and, and snakes. And you'd probably be right. I haven't I haven't done the science, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Around that shoot are a lot of bits of farmland where people like me can go shooting. And we mm. manage those for shooting, which means we manage them for wildlife. We put out food. We have very low densities of pheasants. We don't buy pheasants. We don't need to. They spill out of the big shoot. It's wonderful. It's the joy yeah. of them being wild birds. They can't be fenced in. And uh, and so we, we have some snakes and lizards. And then around us, there's, there's even people who do kind of armed ramble, kind of walk around days. And they have lots of snakes and lizards. And mm. they wouldn't do their shooting if they didn't have pheasants. And we wouldn't do our shooting if we didn't have pheasants. So we are prepared to accept that there are not many snakes and lizards in that central point because we are able to... So that's our sort of contention. Now, there is a what-if version of this, which is, you know, why do you actually need to shoot? What what if you just had them? That's the bit which I think is going to be very difficult to get the British countryside to do. And I would suggest that you work with it rather than trying to change it. And that, and, mm. and And on that, I mean, please educate me out of my kind of unfashionable beliefs don't legislate me out of them that's never going to work but please try and educate tell tell me why i need to stop change my culture i've got a daughter who's a vegetarian you're doing a really good job that's you know well done (laughs) (laughs) you're on your way i'll die soon it'll be great (laughs) no it wouldn't but i guess one thing there's a lot of pheasants released though isn't there yes millions 
Absolutely. Yes. Is so we right? could lower well. Well, well, no, because if you are, you know, if if we lower the number of pheasants released on the shoot that's in the centre of my little ground. If you imagine, if you do your pi r squared maths, or, or if you have a pocket calculator, as I believe the phones are now called, um, <laughs> if you have a sort of central bit that's full of pheasants, then you have a hmm. wider area around it where there are lots of shoots that rely on those pheasants. Wouldn't shoot without those pheasants. Wouldn't be bothered to put down their own pheasants probably where you have good management for all wildlife. And then even further, you have people who have a few. So actually that works. If you have a countryside that is wall-to-wall pheasants, yeah, that would be a bad thing. Absolutely. In the mm-hmm. same way it would be if it were wall-to-wall oilseed rape or cattle or whatever. But we don't. You know, that's what's so lovely about the countryside is that there are lots of places where you have to kind of pull up your horse and can't ride across that bit because they don't like us. And that's, that, that yeah, works. I guess I, I guess because the reason why I said that is we're talking we're talking about the amphibians and reptiles and, you know, the pheasants need, need the shooting and the controlling, but then they're being released. And I understand that people want to shoot, but... The pheasants don't need shooting. No, we put them down for for the you know for shooting that that is the point but mm, the, okay, okay but the benefit of putting them down is we feed the areas heavily we reduce predation so uh on the pheasants but it also has enormous how, do, how does it feed the what I, i've never heard that before what does that mean feed the areas in regards to releasing pheasant so we put a lot of wheat into the shoot so the the birds have got something to eat so they are the Many of them, I mean, there are some wild bird shoots in this country, but many of them are, are come from game farms. So they're hatched on a farm and then you release them onto into what's called a, a pen where they're mm. protected from foxes because they're still pretty young. They learn to fly in and out of the pen. They learn the pen is safety. You feed them around the pen. They've got lots of food to eat. Because they've got lots of food to eat, lots of other animals do really, really well, including rare songbirds. I mean, that's why shoots are such a wonderful sink for all sorts of good things. They also attract a great deal of predators gamekeepers go out and shoot the predators a lot of people hate that but if you didn't do that you wouldn't get so many curlews nesting on shoots you know that's one of the reasons um mm. because curlews are well I, I like um the comedian jeremy hardy who said you know grouse are the only birds too yeah. stupid to act with aristocrats you know that that's it's that sort of idea so <laughs> so uh, and, and again you've you've got that on one shoot there but then you know next door you've got the chairman of the rspb who's got some woodland and uh, he doesn't allow anything so fab you've got you've got both now my mm. contention is that by not allowing anything, he ends up with a kind of snack bar for magpies and foxes. But that's entirely his call. That's what he wants. So he's he's allowed to have that. And uh, and I think again, it's just so great we can do whatever we like with, within the framework. Yeah, that that is yeah. So l- let's go right. Let's move on to grouse moors. There's one issue, and we were we nearly came on to it. <laughs> we nearly did. Um, and there's one issue that's um, often spoken about, which is a burning of heather. Yes. So can can you tell me why this is done? And do you think it's time to change the practice slightly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I don't. But it's, it's done because uh, if you burn the tops off the heather, you regenerate the heather and the young grouse eat the heather shoots. And uh, But it also benefits other species as well. So if you burn the tops off the heather, it is, and I'm going to be a bit fuzzy about the science. So someone like Mark Avery, who if, if, he's, if he's still listening and hasn't kind of turned off the radio in disgust, will we'll say, well, that just <laughs> proves he doesn't know what he's talking about. But it, you'll have to go to the GWC, but it also benefits other, other bird species as well. And it's certainly true that some fabulously high number, like something like a quarter of your Europe's waders breed on grouse moors. You know that, mm. that, and the reason they do that is because uh, heather burning gives them the space and, and and some of the food. And there are predators like weasels and stoats and foxes are kept away from them. So you know, thank goodness we have that. Okay, it's slightly kind of tending towards the zoo version of the English countryside, but without it, we would lose these birds. 
unquestionably. So you do that. Now, the big big problem that a lot of people have with burning heather is this mm. fabulous sink of peat we have underneath yes. the heather. And we have more carbon captured in our peat than all the forests of Europe or something. I mean, it's an amazing. Yeah, number. it's a huge amount. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, so the problem is uh, it sort of stems from um, a, a kind of version of popular science that I, I kind of characterize as stands to reason, doesn't it? So set fire to the heather, you'll burn the peat. Stands to reason. Actually, you don't. So we have two th kinds of fire, broadly speaking, in this country. You have a fire that's completely out of control. Yes, that burns the peat. Those are wildfires. You see them in the news recently. Uh, they tend to start mid-April when it warms up a bit uh, and, mm. and the heather is, is dry and brittle and, and they will burn huge, huge areas and a lot of peat. And then you have what are called cold fires. That's fires, small fires on very small patches that are managed by gamekeepers. And just to show that this is this is what I say it is. As an experiment last year, um, a couple of keepers put a Mars bar underneath the heather and they burnt the heather over the top of it and the Mars bar was still in its wrapper, was still absolutely fine at the end of it. So it doesn't melt a Mars bar, it doesn't even char the outside of the Mars bar, it's not going to burn the peat. So cold burn, good. Wildfire, hot burn, bad. That's that's the bit we need to stop. And then the, the kind of the last bit of this jigsaw is if you do coal burning, you create fire breaks. So the fire chiefs in Wales and Scotland had been to gamekeepers and said, tell us more about this. Sounds great. This is what we want to do. Mm. And, and I'm afraid it, it kind of goes back to, to Ruth Tingay's uh, front cover of Revive, where we've seen the massive fires the wildfires in the last few weeks, Marsden Moor up in Yorkshire. And uh, it, it, it's, it's where... Uh, that's owned by the National Trust, and it is it is not managed for for grouse shooting. Last year, Ilkley Moor, where they local council owns it, and they banned grouse shooting the year before. Ilkley Moor uh, stopped managing it for grouse moor, stopped burning it, and they the councillors of Bradford Council probably killed more baby grouse in that one wildfire that that blew up last year because somebody had a chunk yeah. disposable you know than any number of grass shooters had in the years prior and and that, that's basically the problem you know okay. so okay that's okay. my version of it now uh, <laughs> chris packham and mark and ruth have a completely different version so uh, i, I is it really not that hot? Well, it's not hot enough to burn a Mars bar, so I would guess no. <laughs> I'm going to need to see that. I'm not the yeah. Mars bar. I, I need to see it in person. Where, where are you based? Um, well, I'm down in Somerset, and we have a disastrous um, uh, story about grouse. So the, the big landowners in Somerset at the beginning of the uh, 20th century decided they could do this grouse shooting thing up in Yorkshire. It's becoming terribly popular. Let's do it on Exmoor. Mm. So um, you, apparently they found you could only transport grouse at night. So they had some of their friends collect up grouse in uh, in the dark in Yorkshire and send them down by train overnight down to Exeter, and they took them up a horse and cart to Exmoor, and they released them. Fantastic. We have our first Exmoor grouse shoot. Something very strange happened to the grouse. They decided they were no longer flying. So <laughs> the, these poor landowners who spent all this money bringing the grass down, hoping for these wonderful flying birds to shoot at, nope, they just scuttled. And, uh, and <laughs> apparently there are still scuttling grouse if you look hard enough on Exmoor, but nobody manages the uh, nobody manages the heather for them. Where could where, where I, I want to know because I, I mean, okay. Well, I tell you what, I tell you, an easy way to find out is if you can have a look at the Moorland groups. Um, they mm. are they are increasingly doing very good work um, communicating what Muirburn is all about. They're too late. Yeah, I mean the government has already made up its mind that you know Muirburn needs to stop. I would say that's an ideological decision, not one based okay. on evidence. But 
that's what I, obviously I'd say that. What um, would you say? Does it never get out of control? Yes, absolutely. Uh, actually, that's a really interesting statistic. So quite a high proportion of, of, uh, of reported fires are muir burn that get out of control. The reason for that is because when a, on the occasion when a, a muir burn does get out of control, they report it. People who set fire to the, the heather with their, their barbecues tend to jump in their cars and drive away as fast as they can. So it doesn't get reported. So that's, that's the, you know, unfortunately, that's a good example of statistics kind of giving you slightly the wrong picture. Um, yeah, actually, okay. That came up in Parliament the other day, and, and one, of the, one of the MPs reported, they're supposed to prove how rubbish these, these gamekeepers are. They're always setting fire to things. And, and he thought, well, actually, if you looked at it a bit more closely, you would find out that's not the case. But yes, it, it does occasionally. You know, I, have you ever been next to a, a moorland fire at all of any kind? No, I've seen, uh, have I? I think I've seen one, not, I wouldn't say next to, but it I've is, seen one in distance happening. It is terrifying. I mean, Heather burns amazingly well. It is terrifying how fast it moves. And it, mm. it is very easy for it to get out of control. So you you manage it very carefully. You have techniques for, you know, you you go into the wind, not against the wind, you know, not with the wind, all, all that kind of thing. And and, yeah. and and you make sure that, you know, you're putting it out as fast as you're setting lights to it. So that, that's that's how it's done. And, and it creates these great big black patches where the heather grows anew. And that's one of the one of the things Heather does really well, mm. and, and the birds are happy. Do you reckon in 150 years we'll look back at it now at hunting and, and realise things were going wrong, or do you think it'll be grand? I think we're at a we are at a crossroads at the moment, and it could go either way. In that we mm. could go down a route that I think ends in a horror story for the countryside, and I'll just kind of outline what that is. I think the first of all, though, the other route, which is my way, is never going to be perfect. Mm. It's, it's not going to be universally approved of. It's going to be the the omelette solution, like the countryside already is, and we're going to constantly strive to improve and improve and improve, and we will never stop doing that. The reason I think the the way we we could go is wrong is because it's going to be based on. I mean, the only way it can go. Uh, and the way that some people in the sort of liberal establishment want it to go is a system of management by government. So instead of having a, definitely dropping a framework on the on the countryside and saying it should look like this, I think they're going to start mm. doing. Uh, they're going to start laying about and saying it must look like this. And then I think, like you see in Scotland, they're going to say, okay, if it doesn't look like this, we'll bring in our own people to make it look like this. So in Scotland, you have you know, the horror story of uh, the Scottish government arriving with helicopters and people with rifles to massacre all the deer because they don't like them and uh, and, and we'll yeah. see that uh, you know happen across across the UK because you know at heart the the simple problems of of uh, of wildlife management are not going to go away just by being wished away or being banned or you know whatever it is they they're, they're still going to exist it just means the taxpayer is going to have to pay for them now my way of course wonderful you know the world of shooting and hunting pays for itself. <laughs> we don't involve the taxpayer, but that that you know that is for the government to work it out for themselves. You know to work out that, that is a, a more sensible approach. Mm. But above all, with my way, it's about you know enfranchisement. It's about people who live and work in the countryside. And I know it's not all of them by any means, but a lot of people who live and work in the countryside are happy with the way that we. We do countryside management. Maybe there are things they don't like, but you know there is a social fabric there. And I think that if you move in on wildlife management and make it state controlled, you basically drive a great big tractor through the social fabric of the countryside, and that won't do anybody any good at all. I, I agree with that. I do. I, I think people, um, especially the people that live around what we're talking about, so for example, people that live in the countryside need to be put first in this and really go like, you know, this is what we need and what we want. I think. Can I add one thing to your way that I would like yeah. to see change? You know, respect. Yeah, 
Um, I would like to see, I would love to see, and I think we touched on it earlier when we were talking about like, you know, rewilding and hunting coming hand in hand. I'd just like to see less of a monoculture of things in regards to fauna and flora. Do you know what I mean? So when we look at grouse hunting, and I've never seen in detail, but this is what I see from my research. I've never been to one. But but the amount of heather that's there, where, it, you know, it, it's all of one thing, or it's... It's, it's less less layered. Yeah, well, you see, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I, I don't think it is. I mean, I think I think what I agree with you is I would like to see less of a kind of hegemony of, you know, of belief about it. Uh, I would like to see a lot mm. more vegan fox hunters, for example. But, but mm. no, I mean, I think if you go to the countryside, you'll be stunned by the diversity. Okay. But you have to look at, you know, each little bit of land in, in the context of lots and lots of other ones. If you take and one of the one of the problems with the yes. media is, you know, when they take a photograph of a grouse moor and they go, This is what it's like, what they're not saying is, you know, turn the camera around the other way and, and point at the one next door who hey, he hates grouse shooting. Mm. He you know, he he runs it the other way around. And that's fine. It, mm. it's just um you know, each can do their own thing and we can kind of continually sort of sharpen the blade of you know what what makes it work best for uh, uh, there are some pretty lovely intentions going on in governments you know Dieter Helm wrote a very very interesting book called something about is it green and pleasant land or prosperous or something anyway whatever it is it's it's it kind of outlines in in easy terms his 25-year vision for the countryside it is full of good intentions you know, mm. be careful. Good intentions also pave the route to, to hell. So, you know, you, you also have to be careful of where those lead you. But that is the... I'm so glad that people still want the best for the countryside. I mean, that above all, you know. Yeah, that is important. Yeah, that is very important. I, I would love to... I reckon... I'm going to ask my next question a bit. I reckon I should come to a game. You, you pick the site. Shall I come with you? Should we do an on-location episode? Please, please do. Actually, I've got a question for you. We had we had a vegan artist who specialises in wildlife subjects. She's really good. And she just wanted to kind of get mm. under the skin of what it is that makes people hunt. Mm. And she came and shot her first deer with us. Now, most people go, well, she's obviously not a vegan, then is she? Which is a good point. But but, but that said, I, I, was, I was really pleased that she wanted to. So yes, Ryan, I formally invite you. Marvellous. Yes. I, I want you in tweed breeks and a vintage shirt, please. That would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> two conditions i won't hunt anything and all expenses paid thank you very much absolutely i say well we'll even buy you a beer afterwards yes no that'd be lovely we'd, i would love that all right it's a it's a date ryan you got it wonderful perfect so my next question because we were talking about animals that would be considered vermin this is kind of a hypothetical i'm not a big fan of hypothetical questions because you know might never happen but i just asking it to understand i guess but we were talking about curlews earlier, which are a red-listed bird that do very well on grouse moors. So, for example, if a curlew was to suddenly host a parasite that affected red grouse, what do you think the reaction would be from the kind of hunting industry? Okay, this is a really good question because it's kind of the raptor persecution question, but in a sort of slightly fluffy, fluffier mm. way. <laughs> 20 years ago, I think the reaction would have been what the Americans call shoot and shovel. 15 mm. years ago, I think people would have gone, ooh, that's not really working. Two mm. years ago, and if you look at the graph of raptor prosecutions, now the, you know, the wild justice lot will say, look at that graph, that just goes to show the police are in collusion with landowners because the graph is going down. You know, their convictions are going down for raptor persecution. And I think there's a very simple reason for that. If you are a gamekeeper, you need one thing and one thing above anything else, and that is your shotgun license. And this is a sort of hostage situation. Anybody who's got a shotgun license will, 
you know, can lose it with any kind of bad. Yeah. I can't even drink drive. I mean, you know, I do not even have the freedom to drink drive because I will lose my shotgun certificate. <laughs> and and if I if I were a gamekeeper and lost my shotgun certificate, I would never work again. I would have to get a job doing something yeah. else. And gamekeeping is basically vocational. So that's a really hard thing for them to do. I think it is mm. almost, obviously not completely, but almost inconceivable for a modern gamekeeper, and there are many thousands of them, to kill a curlew if it found if it had parasites that affected grouse, kill a raptor, because the risk is just too great. Not being mm. allowed to be a vegan blogger <laughs> if you are caught doing something would be pretty hard for you. And I think it's the same for gamekeepers. That's why I, I although you know, I want to see all raptor persecution stamped out, I would also say it is, you know, you're a bit like you're turning a ship steaming yeah. across the channel. Can I give you one, can I give you one quick example? Before, before okay, you so, do with that, before um, you do, Charlie, it's really important. Yeah, yeah, I'm well, not a vegan yeah. blogger. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But yeah, okay. You are a blogger who is a vegan, though. Surely. I'm a I'm a podcaster. Is, I'm a conservational a... wildlife oh, podcaster. Oh, you're Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I've not put one year's of work <laughs> into this show to be oh, called a vegan I... blogger. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I call me an evil fox if you like. But I'm so sorry. As you were, what were you, you were going to? Okay, go on. Okay. Here's here's my here's my example. So um, uh, there's been a lot of press about the turtle dove mm. hunt on Malta. Yes. Okay, uh, so just a couple of things about that. In context, the turtle dove migrates from Africa to Europe every year. Uh, we're kind of out on the western edge of where they go, but they do make it to us. I mean, one of the things that's obvious about the turtle dove to me is that the collared dove is considerably better at being a dove than the turtle dove. <laughs> is that under current climatic conditions, it outcompetes the turtle dove. And I would say, if you really want turtle doves, start shooting collared doves. But that's a that's that's that aside. aside. The point is. Uh, there's a lot of focus. There's a lot of focus on Malta, and there they have a, a cap on of five thousand doves that they're allowed to shoot every year in the spring, which they generally don't shoot. And now they breed more turtle doves than they mm. shoot. So you know, hooray for Malta. What's really important about Malta, though, is that twenty years ago, the hunting community there, if they shot something unusual, somebody shot a mm. pelican on Malta. I mean, goodness knows what it was doing there. Somebody shot, it made the front page and the kind of, woo, papers said, look, we shot a pelican. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, imagine that culture. Now imagine trying to turn that culture around. So you're saying you have to be terribly careful about what you shoot. You're not allowed to shoot. Only things you're allowed to shoot, you're allowed to shoot. You know, that is a huge movement of kind of it's very easy for you to say stop shooting it's very difficult for the hunters of malta to do what you want and in the same way with gamekeepers there are an awful lot of them it's a big ship and we've watched it do a kind of three-point turn and it is now sailing away from poisoning persecuting raptors i would say an awful lot of praise for the shooting industry and if you want proof of why it's doing that, of how it's doing that, it's because of the shotgun license thing. Nobody can risk it. But do you think it's it was a big enough because it used to be legal? To, like stepping away from the curlew question now, I guess going on to to raptor persecution, it was used to be legal, so that would have been a culture thing. So I guess we can't, as you said it there, we can't yes. expect people just to stop a culture. It has to change. So with that ideology, it must still be happening in some areas. Uh, no, I, that's, well, this is the point. I, I think it, it, it probably, it, it clearly has yes, been yeah. happening. You know, there's been a prosecution this year. There was a prosecution last year. I think there were two or three the year before. You know, so, but if you go back 15 years or 20 years, you know, there were 10 prosecutions in the year. So we're, we're seeing it fall off a lot. 
Now, the anti-grouse shooting people will say that's because they're getting better at hiding it. That's because they're not being caught. I, I think quite a lot of what they say can be taken with a pinch of salt because of this single truth that it is the end of your career if you do it. And that has sunk mm. in, you know. You know, it is the end of your driving license yeah. if you drink drive. Occasionally, people will still drink drive. It, it, it doesn't figure as much as it used to, but I don't know if you remember 20 years ago, drink drive was huge. You know, <laughs> it's a big craze. Campaign. <laughs> but, and it, it, was, it was like a craze, exactly. It was like, it's like it's acceptable to do it. It is so not acceptable to do it now, and it's the same with persecution. What would you, yeah, what would you say to, yeah, yeah I guess it, for me it's interesting because I've, um, I've not seen the curve, I've not seen many of the graphs because um, it's a, a fairly new topic to me. So, so my penultimate question then, I usually ask, I'm going to edit this one slightly because I ask, I'm going to ask you a minute what advice you'd give on to everyone about the natural world. But before that, I'm going to say to you, what would you say to every gamekeeper in the UK about, killing raptors what would what would charlie say to them what would you say about about that activity <laughs> well what you i think you expect me to say is kids don't do it um <laughs> just say no but uh, i mean i don't think i need to say that i i truly think the message is okay if you shoot a raptor what do you think will happen do you think an estate will re-employ you no they won't do you think you'll be able to go shooting which you love mm. no you won't you know work it out for yourself i i don't i don't think i need to say anything i i, I mean in one respect well done, Ruth. Well done, Mark. Well done, Chris. You have driven that point home magnificently. But there is a point, you know, my grandfather used to get really excited about communism. He campaigned against communism. He's one bloke in half a who campaigned against communism for most of the last half of his life. In 1991, he won. He defeated world communism. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, what are you going to do now? Well, Really, all there was left for him to say was, I won. <laughs> I think Chris and Mark and Ruth really have to sort of take that position. Uh, you know, you, you, you but with two, with I, I, I don't, but there's two it. investigations this week, isn't there? Still, like, you know, no outcome yet. I will say that um, as, as we talk well, now. Ha, okay. But, hi, I, but I will say, okay. let, all right. I, I, think, I will just say, like, obviously, as we're recording this, okay, we're talking about side, it's but, not confirmed yet. Their investigations, yeah. nothing's been proved, but there are still poisonings happening of raptors. I think that's the, one of the core issues, whether it's grouse sites no, or not. No, there's not. That that's a, this is absolutely key. There is a media narrative that uh, wherever you have a grouse moor, you have raptors flapping out there, last dying of being poisoned, and uh, we'll draw a conclusion mm. from that that it helps some people to promote that narrative and it's a kind of a hostage situation you know the more that narrative goes out the more some organizations do very well out of that narrative the the investigations that take place this is talking about a golden eagle that was found poisoned it's a scottish estate and it, uh it was uh discovered in march it was reported the i think it was the rspb found it and they hung on to it for a few weeks and then they told the police so the investigation that's taking place is you know the police can't do anything it's been mm -hmm. dead for two weeks there is there is nothing that can be done there and so the rspb is rightly saying we have found a a golden eagle, which we are saying is poisoned, and it was on a famous grouse shooting, Invercold, Invercold estate. It was on a famous grouse shooting estate, therefore, ergo, you know, gamekeepers are still poisoning. But I would also say I'm, I'm not going to believe, I'm afraid to say, everything that the mm -hmm. RSPB says. Uh, they recently found a raptor on uh, Lead Hills in uh, Dumfries and Galloway. And no, they recently found poison on Lead Hills in Dumfries and Galloway in a plastic bag in a ditch. And it was in a plastic bag with a bottle of a fizzy drink that went out of production in 2009. So they're able to report, we found poison in 
on lead hills and, and lead hills has in the past been investigated for this kind of thing. So well, it's still taking place. They stopped grouse shooting at lead hills three years ago. You know, they have a couple of walked up days. They don't do driven grouse shooting at lead hills. Why would you continue to poison things if you don't yeah. grouse shoot there. And the fact that the, the fizzy drink, unless somebody is very carefully going around <laughs> buying up vintage uh, out of use drinks and planting them with the plastic bag that you should have cleared up anyway. Actually, I spoke to some of the people there and they said, look, you know, we walk by that you know, every week. How come in 15 years we didn't spot it? Well, perhaps you weren't looking, but, you know, there, there, there's, there's a lot yeah. more to these things than meet the eye. And uh, I, until you get a, a conviction... I'm afraid to say, I'm, I'm just going to say, please doubt what you hear about raptor poisoning. And when you have a conviction, look, when you have the convictions, look at the graph. If you see the graph going up again, I'm talking nonsense. I got mm. it completely wrong. I'm really sorry. But for the past 10 years, it has been on a downward curve because culturally, it's just yeah. too great a risk. I mean, one lad, one lad who's on on the conviction list had a dead buzzard in his car that he claimed he picked up as roadkill but he was still prosecuted for killing it successfully he was convicted for it and you know he's part of the it, it's, it's kind of there's an intention problem there you know most of the people who are prosecuted under the hunting act uh, that the league against cruel sports points to and says oh see hunting's still going on because we've got so many convictions i mean a handful of people have actually been fox hunting most people are actually poaching or doing something that was yeah. already illegal but it's just the hunting act's an easier way to convict them so i'm sorry to criticize the rsp no 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 way, i mean I this is why you're on the show is to have your have your point put across okay have my say Okay, one one thing is, you know, they, they made a great deal about uh, a bloke who was putting up a plastic eagle mm. owl on a grouse moor uh, in order to go shooting around it. Uh, and they said, well, it's because it attracts, you know, raptors and then you can shoot them. Uh, you put up a plastic eagle because it attracts corvids, you know, that's, and you, which, which you are allowed to shoot, which again are egg stealers and egg stealers in far, far greater numbers than, mm. than hen harriers. And then, you know, hen harriers is the real flashpoint here. Just look how many of them hatched last year and... Of those, how many hatched on grass moors? Almost all of them. That I think that's probably where the RSPB would be better looking at the moment. I think it's one of those things, isn't it, where it's you know it's so important with these topics. And we've said it a thousand times on the show before: is if you go in to learn about a topic, you need to do as much research as you can before you kind of get. I mean, you're always going to have your gut feeling or your knee jerk. Uh, opinion but it's also important to listen read and do as much research as possible to get an overall view of these things so do you have comments under your podcast do people can people leave comments uh probably twitter and instagram mainly there is a there is an opportunity listeners to add your comments but twitter and i mean to, this the, the comments are exactly why me and you are talking today they are so hashtag into the wild should ryan come shooting with me? <laughs> you're trying to get me cancelled in the vegan community <laughs> I think it's. I think it's going to be fascinating. Just, just you know, should you or should you not? I, it's, it's yeah. I'd well, love to come. To and, I'd love to come and see the land and the wildlife and see this biodiversity that you've told me about today. I'd love. I would genuinely love. To, I won't do a hunt because I just. You don't want a six foot seven crying ginger man on your shoulder, Charlie. Do you? 
Do you want that? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, t- it's tempting. It's <laughs> right. My last question that I'm going to let you go is, uh, this is one that everyone gets on the show, Charlie. So if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet regarding the natural world, what would you pass on? Oh, gosh. Uh... <laughs> Gosh, yeah. Well, don't believe anything you hear and any half of what you read, I think, would be a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> Doubt everything. Question everything. Mm. Absolutely. Question what you're after is, you know, is wisdom, not knowledge. That would be the thing. I like that. I like that. Uh, that that fits very well into, into the wild is, you know, question everything. Let's talk about everything. Don't leave a stone unturned. Let's let's chat about it all. Um, Charlie, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. It's It's been really insightful. And do you know what? In some ways, I think we've hit a milestone today. Uh, a vegan in a vintage <laughs> vintage 70s shirt with long ginger hair chatting to Charlie from Field Sports TV about hunting. We're, great. You know, we're trailblazers here, Charlie. We're trailblazers. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased. Thank you so much for having me on, Ryan. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and tuning in. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Charlie is doing, you can catch up with him on Field Sports TV. The link to those shows are in the write-up of this episode. A reminder that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent anyone that we have worked with or are affiliated with. If you enjoyed today's show or you're just a fan of Into the Wild, then you can say thanks by buying me a coffee. Our Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. We also now have merch available. Say what? I know, right? You can get your t-shirts, your jumpers, your hoodies with Into the Wild branding on. Our T-mail link is in the write-up of this episode. You can also get in touch with me at intothewildpod at gmail.com or on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello, share some thoughts on an episode or even let me know what you want to hear about next. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.